We're going to finish Matthew. Um, we're going to jump into Ezekiel. And you may say, why Ezekiel? Ezekiel is, it's Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They're, they're all a common theme, and it's what to do in exile. They had been God's people in God's place, under God's rule. Things were really good, and then all of a sudden, they're transplanted, and they're living in exile. They're living in Babylon, where the culture is against them, where there's all kinds of paganism, where they're just grieved by what they see all around them. Does that sound at all familiar? That's why we're doing it. So how do we, as those that want to be faithful to Jesus, how do we live in exile? That's Jeremiah, a little bit of Jeremiah, but Ezekiel completely and Daniel completely. They, they park it, home run it in exile. And so that's the reason why I'm moving there. We won't spend a ton of time in it. It's 48 chapters. So I'm going to try to do it in 10 weeks. So we'll, we'll move through it because there's a little bit of repetition in it. And there's some stuff that's like, well, what does that really have to do with us? Well, it doesn't really. Like, I'm going to get Egypt. Okay. Because Egypt had done some stuff. So we'll get stuff from that. But the big idea is how to, how to flourish in exile because that's essentially what both Daniel and Ezekiel do. All right? So Matthew chapter 28. Father, I do... Thank you for this beautiful land that you have given to us and allowed us to dwell in. We do not take for granted the freedom that we have been given to gather in your name, to freely pray and to seek you and to study. We thank you for the rich heritage that we are standing on top of here in this country. And I pray that we would be those that are faithful to that heritage. I pray that we would not complain or grumble or worry, but we would be those that pray, those that stand, those that rejoice, those that see the good every single day. So may even tonight, Lord, you surround us with your goodness. May we get hope from this chapter. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Scripture, there are two major events. Who knows what they might be? Creation. And I'm going to say resurrection. Why resurrection and not the cross? Because a lot of people died on crosses. Jesus was resurrected. That's the difference, okay? And for me, it's creation, and as we'll see, it's recreation. The two big events. Creation, we crushed it. Adam, our, you know, federal head, Romans chapter 5. We crushed creation, so God, through redemption, recreates and has this awesome plan to move forward. So those are the two big events. If I'm talking about the Bible, I'm going to get to creation and resurrection, at some point. And if I'm talking with somebody that's not a believer, when it's creation, I always just say this, okay, if we have something today, what does that mean there was yesterday? Something, right? Well, you can carry that logic back, and it's a, it's a 
philosophy kind of question. You can carry that back a thousand years, six thousand years, six million years, whatever you want. If we have something today, according to the conservation of mass, that means we had something yesterday. You keep going back. What about the Big Bang? I say, fine, let's talk about the Big Bang. Everyone says this. If, If you think about the Big Bang, five minutes before the Big Bang, there had to be either matter or a mind. One of those two. Well, the Big Bang says there was not matter. So according to the Big Bang, right before it, five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever you want to say, there was a mind. Well, I'm going to say that's God. And if they keep arguing, then I'll say this. Tell me how a star, how did we get stars? Have you ever studied how we got stars? Here's what science says right now. And they'll put, they'll be honest. We have a bunch of question marks on this. Science says this, big bang, boom. You have these massive gas clouds that are a billion miles across, right? Billions of miles across, trillions of miles. They're massive. Well, gravity begins to act on those clouds and kind of bring them in smaller and smaller and smaller. And according to the current model, at some point they crushed in and that crushing in ignited the nuclear fire of a star and they begin to burn. So that's the current model. Here's the problem with it. When you take gas and you compress it, what happens to it? It heats up. When you heat up a gas, what happens to it? It expands unless it's in a container. It's not in a container, it's in space. So according to the current model, what would have actually happened is gravity acts, compresses it, it heats up and expands again. Then gravity acts and it heats up and it expands again. They would never compress and ignite the nuclear fires. And if you talk to somebody that actually knows, they'll be like, yeah, we know that. But yeah, okay, <laughs> what are you doing about it? We don't know. It's just one of those questions. We'll figure it out later. Well, that really doesn't work. So I just kind of, I want to probe those things. Like, hold on a second. You have this model that you're saying works. I'm saying there's some big, big fundamental issues with it. Creation. Then we come to Matthew 28, the next big event, recreation. And if you talk to a believer, everyone's going to say, if you believe in God... The resurrection's easy. I had no problem. God can do that. But if I talk to an unbeliever that does not believe in the resurrection, this is what I do with them. I say, okay, fine. You don't believe in a dead person coming to life. I, okay, I can get that. That's not the norm. I'll give you that. But then I'll just ask them this. So tell me, how did we get life? All this life around us, if there's no God, how did we get life? What's the answer? It just happened, essentially. I'll take evolution and just say, it just happened. I'll say, so life, it just happened. Why couldn't a resurrection just happen then? If, if life just happened, why couldn't a perfectly, all the chemical composition is there, why couldn't resurrection just happen? Answer me that. It's fun. Those are the two, if you want to know two big doctrines, no creation and no re- resurrection. And this guy named Gary Habermas, you can Google him, he did this thing that I really like. He went back to 1976, grabbed every journal, every article, 2,200 of them from secular historians, the French, the Germans, and uh, Americans or English. And he scoured them for what secular historians would agree happened with Jesus. And he came up with this thing, he calls it the minimum facts for the resurrection. And he says, if you look at historians, across the board, they agree with these 12 facts. 
But if you took all those 12 facts together, the only answer that makes sense is the resurrection. I'll give you all 12 of them. Here they are. Fact number one, Jesus died on a cross. Most historians will say, yeah, that happened. We don't have a problem with that. Fact number two, he was buried because that's what you do with dead people. So that's not out of the norm. Number two, he was buried. Number three, Jesus' death bummed out his disciples. Pretty simple there. Like they weren't too stoked about that. Number four, the disciples appeared, and I say quotations, appeared to see Jesus. Whether it was a phantom, whether it was their imagination, they believed that they saw Jesus. Most will say, yeah, something happened there. They believe that whether it's a ghost, whether they're hallucinating, whatever excuse it is, they appeared to see Jesus. That appearance transformed the disciples so they became from scared refugees to bold proclaimers of the gospel, all right? Part of that proclamation was the resurrection, that they were boldly proclaiming, you killed Jesus, but now he's alive. The church that was established began to grow. Most historians agree with that. Orthodox Jews who had worshiped Yahweh on Saturday for 1,500 years, when they believed, they changed the day they worshiped to Sunday, which is a, you don't change traditions like that. What happened? Something happened there. Number 11, James, a family skeptic, becomes a believer. And number 12, Paul, an outside skeptic, becomes a believer. If you get at all those 12 and you look at them, what happened? The only answer that makes sense is Jesus came out of the grave. So that's Gary Habermas, the minimum facts for the resurrection. I think it's brilliant. Um, he, he does these speaking engagements and engages atheists really good, all right? So two big events, creation, resurrection or recreation. This is the defining moment for Christianity. Matthew chapter 28, verse one. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake from an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. 
go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. The resurrection. This is Matthew's account. It begins by stating after the Sabbath. I was in Israel about three months ago. And even to this day, on the Sabbath day, the entire place shuts down. You just, everything shuts down. You can't do anything from sundown Friday night until sundown Saturday night, shut down. So they were shut down like that. A side note, that was one of the things I think I would love for us to do as a culture. It's the coolest thing in the world. We have become so busy that we never turn it off. We are redlined all the time. Just zzzz. My weekends are busier than my weekdays. Soccer, practice, running kids here, running them there, going all over the place, trying to catch up. We're so driven to do stuff, we never sit and just simply be humans. And so instead, we're just this frantic kind of, (laughs) they don't. 52 times a year, the entire nation of Israel shuts it down. Boom. Is that awesome? Man, they have a kosher iPhone. Do you know what it is? It's Friday at sundown. Guess what it does? (laughs) And it does not turn back on until... Saturday at sundown, right? So if you want Siri, Siri, yes, I need you to make a phone call. Are you dying? No, then you can't. <laughs> Kosher iPhone. How good would that be? Here's what's amazing to me. Israel, we saw it. People smoke cigarettes there. People eat bad food. They have the same bad habits as any other first world country. But did you know this? Israel, as a nation, entire nation, has the longest lifespan of any nation. I think, personally, they don't know exactly why. I think it's because of the Sabbath. Jesus said, the Sabbath isn't something bad. Jesus says, it was made for you. It's a gift for you. If you would learn to shut it down, there's a rhythm in your life. If you learn to just shut it down for one day, you'll become so much healthier. That's a side note. So they've shut it down and they're, 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 these ladies are now just kind of waiting, like, when can we go? Sundown Saturday night doesn't work. So they wait, wait, wait until early Sunday morning and they get up, they run there, they rush the tomb and what do they see? This being that Matthew just says, his appearance was like lightning, He's trying to describe something that's impossible to describe. Have you ever tried to describe something that's just indescribable? Here's my best example. (laughs) is before I had any kids, a really good buddy, really love him. He had a daughter, and so he knew my wife was pregnant. He goes, bro, let me tell you about childbirth. I said, okay, tell me. He goes, all right, have you ever been gutting a deer? I just said, stop. So, no, I don't care. This, you're not going there, man. He did anyways. I'm like, ah! <laughs> you just can't describe that one. <laughs> Please don't. I'll go experience it myself. 
So Matthew is trying to describe this being. He says, he's like lightning. He's like lightning. I think you can see in the Bible, like there's this theme of these beings that when you see them, they're like lightning. It says Jesus, when he has his glorified body in Revelation 1.16, that his face shone like the sun. Matthew 17, he is transfigured and he becomes like lightning. Here's my thought on it. I think in Genesis 1, when we were created and Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, I think they glowed like a light bulb. Like you can't see the filament in a light bulb, right? Because it's glowing. I think that's original humanity was supposed to glow like a light bulb. Like that's what we're supposed to be. In fact, I think you still see it. Like we say of a bride, when she's, when she's all ready, we say this, what? She's, she's radiant. What are we saying? She's glowing. In fact, science has proven she is. She has more red blood cells going to her face. They put off infrared light or radiant heat. Like you, we can actually feel it. So I think we are still light bulbs. We're just really low wattage right now. But one day it gets cranked back up. One day we get restored and we're the way we're supposed to be. So there's this, this lightning dude and he moves this, whatever it is, two, 3,000 pound stone. And so the guards, what do they do? They play possum. They're like, nah, you know what? That dude just moved that stone and sat down. <laughs> we're just gonna act like we're dead. That's a good move right here. <laughs> he just laid down. I love that. And then he sees the ladies and, he, and, and I love what he says. I mean, it's, it's a perfect message. Come and see, verse six. Verse seven, go and tell. There's Christianity, period. Come and see Jesus and then go and tell other people. There's, your, there's Christianity. That's this entire book. Come and see what Jesus is and then go and tell. Come and see Jesus. You've got to do something with Jesus. More songs have been written about him. More books have been written about him. He's the most important person in history. Come and see, figure it out, and then go and tell people what you have seen. A lot of churches do one or the other good. Some churches are very good at come and see. Come and see our events. Come and hear our brilliant teaching. Come and come, come, come here. But, but they don't then send out on mission. Go and tell, go and do something. Go and invite. Others are very good at go and do stuff and it becomes a social gospel, but they forget to come and see Jesus. It's both. You have to come and see Jesus and have the right message so that you can go and tell people about it. And so these ladies, they see the empty tomb. And then it says, and I love this phrase, verse eight, they departed quickly with fear and great joy. What a mix of emotions, right? Fear and great joy. Have you ever had that mix of emotions? I have. I'll stick with the childbirth analogy, <laughs> right? There's fear and great joy. I can remember when the nurse, when we were um, dismissed from the hospital and sent home, I can remember the nurse handing me Carissa and, 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 and grabbing her and thinking to myself, what, is this it? 
Where's the DVD series? Are you going to come check up on us? I mean, really? You're just giving me her and then I can just walk out? This is crazy. This is ridiculous. Don't you know who I am? You should not give me this child. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Fear and great joy. That's how they feel. You know, 15 years later, it's still fear and great joy. Like, I look her right in the eye and I'm like, fear and great joy. Like, oh my goodness. What have we done here? <laughs> listen, I caught you when you were eight pounds, two ounces. You need to listen to me. So I, I can understand that though. What have we seen here? Is this real? Oh my goodness. Oh, we've seen this angel. Oh yeah, fear and great joy. Fear and great joy. And then as they're running, verse nine, Jesus met them and said, greetings. How anticlimactic is that? <laughs> right? Greetings. It's, it, the word here in the Greek, it's the most common greeting. It'd be like you and me saying, what's up? Hey, like that. Like, are you kidding? It'd be like seeing a, a guy that just went to the Olympics, won 26 gold medals, broke every world record. And when you see him, he's like, hey. Like, Dude, no, you just, you just ripped it at the Olympics. Jesus, you just went to the cross and you just defeated death and you're resurrected and darkness has been beaten back and the enemy is defeated. Yes, right? Instead, it's just, hey, hey. (laughs) Oh man, it's Matthew. Matthew is something else. He just is reporting the facts, right? I report, you decide. He doesn't even tell what it means. Like you have to go to Paul and Peter and John and the epistles to really realize like the extent of, of the resurrection and what it means. Matthew's just saying, this is what happened. I'm just gonna tell you the facts. That's, that's all I'm telling you. I'm just gonna give you all the facts. And he gives some awkward ones. Like it's ladies here. You know your history. First century Rome. Ladies could not testify in court. Their testimony was inadmissible. You know Why? Because everybody knows ladies are hysterical. I don't mean comedians. And so 2,000 years ago, nah, we can't listen to her. She's hysterical. He puts us in here because it's true. This is the way it went down. I'm just telling you the facts. Two ladies discovered the empty tomb. Okay. And I'm going to even tell you what it means. Right? That Matthew won't tell you what it means. This Matthew will. I'll tell you what it means. What it means right here, these 10 verses mean victory. These 10 verses mean anything is possible. We know, we believe Jesus walked out of the grave and now everything bows to the king. Broken marriages bow to the king. They're not impossible. Kids that are wayward and you've given up all hope. No, no way, anything's possible. Our culture that seems headed in a direction where we say, what is going on? Oh, that bows to the king. Grants pass with its issues and problems that seem to stretch back for generations. They bow to the king. Disease, it does not matter. Anything is possible. So now we have hope because of these 10 verses that God has been on this rescue mission to get his people He's been on this rescue mission to rid the world of evil and death and disease and to recreate humanity in the way that we're supposed to be. 100 watt rather than one watt. And so verses one through 10 say, it's happening now. 
I'm going to restore you humans to be the proper image bearers, that you are going to be, Romans 8, 29, conformed to the very image of my son, back to Genesis 1, back to being what you're supposed to be. And every one of us, because of the brokenness of this world, has had that hope or that desire crushed in us. Do you know that? That's why we love kids so much, because it hasn't been hit so hard yet. I call it death by a thousand paper cuts. That we have these dreams and these hopes and these desires, but what happens in the brokenness of this world is they're slowly crushed one after another after another, week after week, month after month, year after year. There's a crushing that happens to us because of this world. And we know that we should be something else. We know that we should glow a million watts and we're not. We know that we should be more. We know that we should be greater. We know all these things but there's been cut after cut after cut after cut after cut after cut, and finally we get crushed by it. But the resurrection says this, oh, no more. I'm gonna recreate you. What's been broken and what's been damaged is going to be renewed and remade, and what you become will be out of this world because when you see me, you're gonna be like me. You're gonna glow just like me. That's the resurrection. We are gonna become a new kind of humanity that rule and reign with him forever, reflecting the glory and the image of God for eternity. That's the resurrection. It's awesome. If we were charismatic, we'd say amen. amen. Since we're not, you should at least smile. <laughs> it's a good response. Now there's another response and we see it immediately here in verse 11. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we, sleep, while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Here's a response. No resurrection, something else happened. And today there's all these responses to Jesus. The, the one right here, it's called the conspiracy of the disciples. That when Jesus was on the cross and he dies, the disciples got together that weekend. They're like, hmm, what should we do? Let's steal the body and make up the gospel. Perfect, let's do that. Now, if you've read the book of Matthew, you'd be like, there's no way they're doing that. <laughs> there's just no way these guys are doing that. They're not talented enough. But that was a common common idea. Still this day, minor one. Another one is what I call the black knight theory. Has anyone here seen Monty Python's The Search for the Holy Grail? Who has seen that? It's such a brilliant movie. Man, are those European or are those African swallows? So there's the black knight. He's in the road, right? And he's saying, you cannot pass. And he starts fighting the guy. And then the guy just 
lops off his arm. He's like, okay, puts away his sword. The guy's like, what? We're not done here. Let's keep fighting. So that he keeps, all right, fine. Dude, you're missing an arm. All right, fine. So then he cut, cuts off one of his legs. He's like, okay, now we're done. Puts away his sword. No, we're not done yet. Dude, you're missing a leg and an arm. Doesn't matter. So then he cuts off his other leg and he's like, okay, that's obviously you're done. No. So he keeps fighting until till he has no arms and no legs, right? You've seen that? And then he's like, okay, it's a draw. <laughs> like, it's just hilarious. That's the black knight theory of Jesus. That he is beaten that a bag is put around his head. He's got thorns crushed into his skull, 39 times with a cat of nine tails. He has spikes driven into his wrists and into his ankles. He's hung on a cross for six hours. He has a spear plunged into his heart, stuck in a grave. But after three days in the grave, he's revived. And it's like, you know, I should go home now. Draw. <laughs> it's insane. J. Vernon McGee, who is an old school preacher, that I really like. He had this response to it. A lady let, sent him a letter, and in the letter, she said, my pastor is teaching us the swoon theory that that's what happened. What should I do? This was his response. J. Vernon McGee wrote back and said, quote, take your preacher, beat him with a cat of nine tail 39 times, <laughs> cover his head with a bag and punch him repeatedly, force him to carry a heavy wooden cross a few miles, nail his legs and arms to a cross and leave him there for six hours. Plunge a spear into his heart and embalm him with 75 pounds of spices. Put him in an airtight tomb for three days and then ask him if he still believes in the swoon theory. If he is silent, he no longer believes it. <laughs> that one's really not that popular. It was 50 years ago. Here's the big one. If you watch PBS around Easter... You watch Discovery Channel around Christmas. I love Discovery Channel for lions. I don't like Discovery Channel for theology. If you watch it, there'll be a show or a number of shows where they'll say, we're looking for the historical Jesus. Whenever you see historical Jesus, what that means is this, it's the legend theory. So what that theory puts out is over the course of 200 years, the stories about Jesus kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, like a fisherman, right? I caught a fish this big. Uh, a year later, it was about that big. Two years later, it's that, that idea. Like Jesus, the legend about him grew and grew over the course of 200 years. It took about 200 years for those stories to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's the idea. So when they say we're looking for the historical Jesus, they're saying we're trying to peel back those 200 years and get back to 30 AD and find out, what Jesus really was. And what they mean by that is he's not divine and there is no resurrection. So whenever you see historic, historical Jesus, know that's where they're headed. Here's the problem with that theory now. We're finding out that it did not take 200 years to start saying Jesus was divine. It was much earlier than that. So there's a mosaic in a church that's dated around 80, 90 AD, and on that mosaic, in a church floor, it says this, Christ is God. Now, that's a hard one to manufacture. So now they're like, well, okay, it grew a lot faster than we thought. Normally, legends can't grow quite that fast. You need about 200 years for a legend to grow. Mm. But then what scholarly research has shown with manuscripts is 1 Corinthians 15, which is the key chapter talking about the resurrection, 
they think that what Paul is quoting there is actually a kind of a thing that would roll around the churches, like a, like a, way, to, a way to remember what had happened. And they are dating that to around 38 AD, but 1 Corinthians 15 minimally is 45 AD. So with less than a decade, maybe 12 years after the resurrection, there is a document going around saying, Jesus is alive. Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. That's not enough time. That's why Paul says, there's 500 people, go chat with them yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. There's a bunch of other people that saw Jesus alive. So that theory is actually becoming less and less popular. And at this point, there's no good one left, except for what this angel says. He is not here, for he has risen. That's what happened. And so we're supposed to do something with that. Come and see. Now what are we supposed to do? Go and tell, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I love verse 17. <laughs> I mean, I could just go off on that right now. I'll spare you. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is the launch. We looked at this on Sunday. The church is kingdom, community, temple. And we are to be those that are inviting people into it. We call it evangelism, which for most Christians is kind of a nasty word, right? When we think about evangelism, I think most of us, we click into what I call Jehovah Witness evangelism model, right? Oh, great. And if they go out and like knock on my neighbor's door and be like, do you know about Jesus? No, cloud, okay, good. Do you knock to the next door? Oh, do you know about Jesus? No, okay. Like that's kind of the mode that has, has like evangelism is this door-to-door -door kind of thing that I hate. I just hate to do that. I don't think that's supposed to be evangelism. I have a really good friend who we hung out for a while. He's now in Texas. His name is Shane Skirvin. I love him. And he said this, man, I grew up with that model. You got to go knock on doors. It's something you just got to do. And it's a bummer. And ugh. he said, but but something happened to me when grace was awakened in my life. When I finally saw Jesus as beautiful, he said, it was like I was introduced to Treasure Island and I wanted to invite all my friends there. That's evangelism. Look what I found. Look what I found. Evangelism. This text, over a year ago, super pricked my heart. Like, I'm still trying to figure out what to do with it. Because here's what I can be. As a pastor, I can be obsessed with the church, but then completely forget about the lost. Like just, oh, church, 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 church. But then I forget, wait, there's a bunch of lost people out there. 
was a much lost people. And what I've seen with Christians is we almost go through these phases, right? We get saved and we realize we're on Treasure Island. And so we're really excited and we're inviting everybody else. Dude, you gotta check this out, Treasure Island, awesome. And then we get immersed into the culture of church. And like we have the church mechanic and the church plumber and the church electrician and the, and the church carpenter and, and, and those things are not bad, but we, we completely church, you know, a Christian haircut dude and just everything's church, everything's Christian. So then, then we're in this kind of Christian bubble. And then what happens, what I've seen very often is the church bubble then becomes, becomes a Jonah bubble. We start to kind of look out from our church bubble and we're like, Nineveh, oh, I hate those people. Oh, look at those cults. Look at those sinners over there. Yuck. God, you should get them. You ever felt that way? I have. I- I'm saying this because that's what I've done, all right? I've gone this exact way. Immerse myself and start just kind of looking out at the world and be like mad at culture, mad at people, mad at Nineveh, instead of letting my heart be broken like Jesus's was over a broken city. And so this text has been like, oh man, Lord, how, how, do I, how do I get out of that? How do I get out of the church bubble and my obsession with church where it causes me to forget about the lost and causes me to forget about the very launch where I'm supposed to be going into all the world and teaching and sharing and discipling? And like I've been just trying to figure out for myself, like, is it possible for me to change my schedule in such a way that I, I spend a full day in the city of Grants Pass, like studying different places, Bible open, laptop, just saying, Lord, I wanna be around those that do not know you. I wanna purposely plan my life so that I'm forced into those things because as a pastor, it's so easy to get in this bubble. Like, oh, I'm in this bubble. I'm around Christians all the time. I'm around believers all the time. And I'm now I'm starting to become a Jonah and I don't like it. I thought, well, if I could do something like that, change my schedule, change some things up, and then just take Thursday and be like, you know what? I'm going to Rogue Roasters. I'm gonna sit there with my Bible and my laptop. And I'm gonna minister to the middle-aged kind of people. And then one day I'll go to Dutch Bros and wait and see if there's young people I can minister to. And then Bluestone for the hippies, just go to all kinds of people. I think it'd be super healthy because... I can so easily get stuck in this forgetting the big purpose, forgetting what I'm really called to be doing, which is sharing the beauty of Jesus, telling people I found Treasure Island. Huh. And there's this thing, it's called your reticular activation system. I've said that before. And I'll explain it like this. Let's say you go buy a brand new white Volkswagen Passat and you're driving around, what do you all of a sudden see? Tons of white Passats, right? You're like, what? Everybody's copying me, man. Everyone bought a white Passat. No, what happened? All of a sudden, in your reticular activation system is a white Passat, so you start recognizing them everywhere you go. I think as Christians, evangelism should be the core of our reticular activation system. It should be always right there, Jesus, when's my next opportunity to share of your goodness with somebody? Jesus, when's the next time I can share the Great Commission? Jesus, where's the next person that I can bless? Jesus, where's the next person that my heart should be broke over because they're lost and they have not found Treasure Island? That's the Great Commission to me.
That's the Great Commission. And when we do it, when we do it, we're so blessed. Every time I share the gospel with somebody, in the right kind of way, not knock, 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 do you like Jesus? No, okay, do you like Jesus? When it's that flow of God's spirit and you sense him and you know, man, there's nothing better. There's nothing better. It fulfills you. So the angel is right. Come and see and then go and tell. Edgewater, you've come and seen. Matt Heverly, you've come and seen. Now let's go and tell. So Father, thank you for Matthew 28. Thank you that because you're alive, anything is possible. There is no problem too great. There is no marriage too broken. There is no person too far. That you defeated death, darkness, Satan, And now we get to declare to those that are still in darkness, still trapped, there's freedom, there's Treasure Island. I pray that you would be stirring in my heart and in each of our hearts a spirit of real evangelism, connecting with people, walking with people, sharing with people, loving people, weeping over the brokenness of people so they might know Jesus. Help us in that, I pray. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.